the Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. Episode 26 Cruise of the Gods Hello everyone and welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. Today we are going to watch a 2002 BBC production called The Cruise of the Gods. Starred Rob Brydon, David Walliams, Steve Coogan and James Corden. It was written by Tim Firth who also wrote Kinky Boots. He wrote Border Cafe, which if, we, if you haven't seen it's fantastic mm. and we should do it at some point. He had a good writing history. And Cruise of the Gods is the story of a science fiction convention on a cruise ship. And it's a convention celebrating a long defunct kids TV series loosely based on the Tomorrow People called The Children of Castor. Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan are two of the previous leads of the of the show um, whose lives and careers have gone in very different directions. David Walliams is the organiser of the convention, assisted by James Corden. Before we move on, it's time for another squeeze of the tonic screwdriver. Simon, we're on another tester gin. Which one's this? This is courtesy of Sam, isn't it? It is. And this is, I'm going to massacre the Gaelic pronunciation of this, but uh, Damil seaweed gin. Um, How are we spelling Damil? D-A- New word, M-H-I-L-E. Okay. Despite having lived in Belfast for 12 years, I had no idea how to pronounce Irish Gaelic or what the vast majority of it means. <laughs> well, I wouldn't worry about the pronunciation. It's a taste that is everything. And it's another good one. It is lovely. I would... Um, it's it's subtle. It, it has a salty edge to it, which will be coming from the seaweed. But it's subtle. It is. It's, and I'm getting a slightly sort of minty tingle. Mm, I can't get a handle on that at all. That's, it's it's very nice, very drinkable. Mm. Oh, the little bit of card that comes with it says, uh, savoury gin with fresh green garden herbs and citrus peel, light spices and subtle mint flavours with a subtle saline finish from the, the seaweed infusion. So there we go. I'm not getting herby stuff off it at all. No. It's absolutely delicious. I think it would be... They recommend it as a... Um, a martini gin, I think vermouth would swamp this. Yeah, it would really. Um, I, I think this is a, a lovely gin, uh, gin with uh, with tonic. I'm very, very pleased with this. This is lovely. It's cruising very dangerously towards five territory, but it's not quite for me. But it's almost. It's the, the very top end of a four I'm going to give this. This is a five for me. This is absolutely lovely. It's subtle. It's an early evening drink. Mm. You, You'd not want to... Actually, you could cane this because it doesn't taste as strong as it actually is. I think I'm going to have to nudge it into five territory because I could just quite happily neck that and have another straight away. Yeah, it's a five. Yeah, mm. so two fives. Two fives, yeah. Five burnets for Damil Seaweed Gin. Available from all good stockists. I'm not sure that it is. Because... <laughs> Because we also got the Kojin gin from the, these gin yeah, boxes, and, that was. and you've had uh, you've had a bit of trouble trying to find some, haven't you? I have, but as you pointed out, I've gone through the regular suppliers such as Amazon. Yeah, when, whereas I, when I googled it, I could find it quite yeah. easily. Well, let's crack on. Um, you want to hit play? Okay, Andy Van Allen is on the boat. 
This is a big deal. This is a very, very big deal for you. I mean, this normally on fan club cruises, this initial greeting is exclusively a celebrity and head of fan club movement. Uh, treasurers don't normally get to witness this, so watch and learn. Hello? Oh, Christ. Greetings! Jeff Monks, Chairman of Purity. The children, obviously, have cast a your show with the, the, the fan club. This is Russell. So, how's the room? Is it? Can I just check? It's an executive deluxe. Uh, no, it's an Ocean View deluxe sky suite. They don't have executive deluxes. This is a little thing. Go mm, on. No, he doesn't want any more of those left on his pillow at all. Um, and also, tiny thing. This towel seem a little coarse to you. I think that's his bath mat. The television. Ah, yeah. Right, well, that was Cruise of the Gods, uh, an hour and a half of exam cross-examination of basically fan conventions. This one just happens to be on a cruise ship. In some ways, it's a bit of a love letter to fandom. It's obviously written by somebody who has been to their share of conventions. Mm. The plot is that uh, it's a, a cruise celebrating a 20-year-old science fiction TV series from the 80s called The Children of Castor. Low-budget uh, cancelled years pre- years previously and uh, the plot of the children of castor was that there was a group of teenagers in england who went into a, a cellar in the meantime there was a nuclear war everybody on the planet was mutated apart from those seven people and it was their struggle to survive after that they recreate a number of clips from the, uh, the episodes of the the show that are interspersed throughout and it's cheap-looking, low-budget stuff, quite reminiscent of the Tomorrow People, <laughs> with dreadful 80s fashions and hairstyles and things. The two lead actors from that are played by Rob Brydon and Steve Coogan. Their careers have gone in different directions. Rob Brydon's career failed before it even started, and he now works as a hotel porter in London. Um, Steve Coogan moved to, to America and now is a big star from a show called Sherlock Holmes in Miami. Rob Brydon's character, Andy Van Allen, agrees to come along on this fan cruise because he's running very short of money. Turns up and is met by the organiser of the, the cruise, David Williams, who is a typical Uber fan with interesting social skills mm-hmm. that we've all seen at conventions time and time again, who is obviously in love with this, um, this old show. And Andy Van Allen really behaves like an arse to start with. From the, yes, from the word yeah, go. He is stroppy, he is demanding, um, he's prima donna-ish, refusing to, uh, to wear the costume that they, they provide for him, um, finding tiny nitpicky little faults in the, the room that he's got. Then meets the other two stars on the cruise. One is a bloke who was from the title sequence of The Children of Castor and had a grand total of two words that he said in the entire series. And he keeps repeating these two words, I'm changing throughout the, uh, the story. The final one is the writer who's a um, recovering alcoholic. He interacts with some of the fans. There is a, a female fan who he um, seduces on the, the first night by wearing the costume that he's refused to wear. Um, there is also the, the treasurer, uh, played by James Corden, of the, uh, the fan group, 
who is a bit weird and obsessed by him mm. to start with until you realise and that his character uh, character's Russell isn't it yeah, yeah. Um, has a number of props from the, the series including um, uh, an arm that one of the um, the extras playing a mutant uh, war in the series and as it goes on you find out that they'd, um, that extra is actually Russell's mother and Russell's father is Andy after they had a liaison on set yeah it's a polite way of putting it mm. they're cruising around the, the Mediterranean they go to a Greek island and by coincidence run into Steve Coogan's character who is filming Sherlock Holmes in Miami in, in the area, playing a character called Nick Lee. He's wildly enthusiastic about the fandom, was disappointed that he hadn't been asked on the cruise, wants to come along and, and join in, comes and interacts with the, the fans in a way that Andy hasn't been. Because of his status as a uh, as a big star of uh, Sherlock Holmes in Miami, they organise a, a special dinner with the um, with the captain. Andy brings Janet along, who is the... Um, the fan that he copped off with on the the first night, and she is awkward and out of her depth. The captain is very keen on the the Sherlock Holmes in Miami thing because he's heard of it. Steve Coogan is trying to sort of de- deflect some of the attention he's getting on onto Andy throughout the meal, but it doesn't really work. And Andy gets very despondent, gets quite drunk, and has a go at Janet. Then there's a um, a drill alarm. It turns out that a passenger has jumped overboard it's the um the third guest the um the one from the the credit sequence they have quite a moving um memorial to him and he leaves his video camera to andy and it turns out that he was dying of cancer um it had maybe six months to live and rather than sort of waste away in a, uh, a hospital or a hospice somewhere he wanted a memorial service and this was the best way to get it with people who were going to shed a tear and hold a candle for him while that memorial service is happening, Andy gets the offer of a uh, a job on Sherlock Holmes in, mm. in Miami. And Nick has created a part for him, recognising that he's uh, down on his luck. And he turns up and he, he carries on doing the I'm a big star thing. But it turns out that it's a, a, a tiny little bit role that he, he's been given. He fleshes that out as much as he can. He gets a single speaking, lo- speaking line. He gets the character to have a name. So little victories. And then goes back to the cruise ship, carries on becoming more and more despondent. And that's the point where he discovers that Russell is his son, has a bit of a um, re-evaluation of his life, a bit of a change of heart. And the final sequence is where Steve Coogan's character comes back to the boat. He and Andy recreate their roles on the series with all the, the fans in attendance, all dress up in costume. They recreate one of the, the episodes that Russell's mother was in. Mm-hmm. In that episode, there is a uh, a child mutant who's key to the plot, and Russell plays the part of the child mutant. Basically, it's a it's a turning point in Andy's life. He um, during that point, Nick tells him actually all of these people know that you're uh, you're a, a hotel porter and have had no success, but they don't care because of who you were and because of what the show means to them. The whole thing ends on quite a high where Andy is something of a reformed character. He's discovered that he's got a son. He's um, reconnected with his friend and, and, and former colleague. We never actually see what what happens to his life. Presumably goes back to being a porter. Hopefully with a, a little bit more purpose in his life. It was nice. It was a nice little piece. Um, the prima donna thing that runs all the way through it. Now bear in mind, I've never actually witnessed any of that, but it must have gone on. 
I mean, this is not, uh, it's entirely believable that somebody's had a minor role or sort of a, a supporting role many, many years in the past. Invited to one of these things may just have an overinflated opinion of their own importance. It is cringeworthy. And you get the impression when he walks into the cruise ship, he is clearly awed by the opulence of this suite that he's been given. But it's the dumb thing to be picky and starry. Uh, and he bumps into one of the other attendees at another convention on the ship is a singer who is a real singer at the name um, Jack, Jack Jones. Jones, who is an actual real performer. And eventually gets into, it's a, again, another cringeworthy scene where he doesn't, Andy doesn't recognise this Jack Jones and he's banging on and on about being a star. And then sees him performing, sees him performing to his fans, sees him interacting with it, with his fans and then goes backstage and says, how do you do it? How do you pretend that you, you care about these people? I know it's part of being a star and he just turns around and said, well, clearly you don't have a problem because obviously you're not a star. So there's a whole load of little things like that that really bring Andy low before he can be can be built up again. There's a lot of stuff in it that is artistically licensed, like the, the end sequence where they all act out an episode. That's done for emotional effect and I can't ever actually see that uh, being done with quite such enthusiasm with costumes and props and what have you but the fan you can't see people turning up with costumes and props to a convention no I mean the actual original star is taking it on with such passion and enthusiasm and the listen to any big finish they're being paid to work yeah he's being paid to be there oh give up Anyway, and the only the only marginally disbelievable thing about the fans is that they're all wearing the same T-shirts. That's about it. But they've they've got the fans spot on. Kind of. Um, from fandom of this era, I would say that there are two things they haven't quite got right: male female ratio. True. There yes. are a lot more women in this yeah. than you'd expect. The comment in rows about when she turns she's up... She's a she. She's a, <laughs> one of your people, and she's a she, is true from what I've seen across the majority of fandom. Um, actually, that, that's changed with New Hope. It has massively, um, yes. And, Although it is drifting back the other way. Yeah, which is unfortunate, because yeah. I, I think the change was very much for the better. Mm. I think having a broader spectrum of fans... And I, I'm approaching this from a Doctor Who fan mm. point of view, because that's the, the kind of conventions that I've, I've been to. And I don't, I don't go to as many conventions as you do. I haven't been to one for a few years now. I've been to one for this. years. And I, I never really went to the, that many. It was Conventions were always more of a, a miss than a hit thing for me. You see, I've, I've been some really, really well-organised ones, but the golden age of Doctor Who conventions, I think, is over. Because A, we've lost a lot of classic stars. And B, they're extremely expensive to put on. And I know that a lot of people that have organised these have lost a lot of money and in some cases gone bust because of putting on a convention. It's a shame because they are really, really, or they were really, really good events. And I met some very interesting people there and people that I didn't think I would be interested in have gone on stage and been absolutely captivating. Having helped to organise a convention and sort of manned the reception desk uh, for the convention I helped organise. The sense of entitlement among particularly fans who perceive themselves to be important. So I am a name in fandom, mm. so therefore I should get special status. I had people turn up at the desk and say, what do you mean you don't know who I am? Well, I, I know the name. I've never actually seen you or met you. There, there were people who say, well, 
I should be on the on the guest list. Why? I I had little interaction with the with the actual guests because that wasn't a bit of the convention I, I was working for the most part. But the the professionals, so the the actors who'd appeared on the the show, yeah, they were regarding it as a job. But it was a job that they they wanted to be able to to come back to. Mm. So they they put their all into it. Now I think so. This would have been to um, late nineties or so. I think the generation before where there um, was less of a fan following. I think the first one that I went to was uh, one of the Panopticons in sort of mid to late eighties. There were stars from the series there, but it wasn't really their bread and butter. Mm. Um, there, there wasn't the the big finish fan produced the income stream that they could have, and there there wasn't really the the impetus to um, to keep their noses clean really. So you so you could get some people who were a bit up themselves, mm. and equally you got you got some people who use conventions as an opportunity to come along and shag fans. And I think you know who we're talking yeah, about. There. Didn't mind be one or two, yes, um, yeah. I've never been on the receiving end. I hasten to add. Yeah, but as a as a drama about fan conventions, yes, it's um, oh sorry, the, the, no. a, that was talking about the first thing that I'd noticed. Oh yes, convention attendees was the male female ratio. The second thing, and again, this is dating back to the kind of conventions that would probably been around at the time, is hygiene levels. Oh, good grief, yes, because it's a minority, but it's quite a recognisable and ever present minority. There are fans that you wouldn't want to be stuck in a lift with. Yes. Uh, they're always the same sort of spherical type. And one scene never forgotten. Black t-shirts, I've noticed. A lot of black t-shirts. It doesn't cover up the hygiene, boys and girls. Yeah. So those couple of little things that I thought were at odds with what an actual convention audience is like. Mm. But artistic license, you don't really want people looking too grubby on the telly. And the over-analysis of some of, <laughs> some of the aspects of the, um, of the show. So uh, the, um, the seven characters in, in the show all have quite odd names like Romac and... Tension. And, uh, what was the other one? Morgan. And uh, David Williams' character is going through a, um, a detailed critique of each of these names and the mystical significance and sort of subsections of it and the writers in the audience and by this time the writer has had an argument with Andy Van Allen's fallen off the wagon um it turns up blind drunk and rather than doing the aloof and making um intellectual type com- comments about the uh, the writing that he's doing um it just says they're all anagrams for curry um <laughs> so Romac is an anagram for for Korma um, there's mango chutney and vindaloo and um, Madras. It's, I have to say though that is one of my favourite sequences from this because the way the way that David Williams' character analyses to bits going into the Latin for superfluous, seemingly superfluous letters, and then when he's corrected by the by the writer, he's not for having any of yeah, it. Yeah, he, he argues with the writer and says. No, that that isn't what you meant. It's it came from you to from somewhere else. It's subliminal. It's much more important than the triviality you're making it. Um, and he's desperate to, firstly, desperate to hang on to his fan theories. Mm. And we've all seen that. We have seen that. Yes. Um, but also desperate to uh, to put a a relevance to what was a, a pretty trivial TV show that he has 
obviously dedicated his life to. He, did, he looks after the, the the fan club when they come to uh, to reenact the um, the episode at the end. Everybody else is reading off bits of paper. He knows the script inside out and backwards. And as Doctor Who fans, that is something that I think we can get on board with because. As wonderful as it is to watch, and it's a, a really big part of my life, Doctor Who, and particularly Doctor Who from the sort of 60s and 70s, was ephemeral and trivial and not seen as particularly artistically valid, and in the intervening years has been analysed to death. Yes. Um, and we've done it with our Doctor Who episodes, and there are things that you can read into the way the characters characters act, particularly in the in the sort of 60s thing that you look at look at them with a modern eye and come to a, a different interpretation of of what's going on and that that's the way it was never meant to be watched and uh, and this shows that beautifully and in the old days of outpost gallifrey you could see that level of analysis being do, being done for trivial little things in throwaway scenes in the 1960s my closing lecture is entitled nomenclature the meaning of the names in Children of Castor. To say these are just names is an injustice to the genius of Hugh Bispam. Let us first analyze the name Romac. Notice the collision of Rom and Ack, the romance and action. On closer scrutiny, Roman mythology tells us of twins Romulus and Remus, outcasts raised by a wolf. Now, if this stem is shared with Rom, then the suffix AK forms a parody of the Latin AD, Anno Domini, as K is the scientific symbol for anybody? 1000, meaning a millennium. Now suddenly, within the name Romac, we have Wilderness Child of the New Millennium. And there you have it. Tench. Now, the obvious spelling would be T-E-N-C-H. But look, if you will, at which letters are silent. Why did the writer choose the letters U and Y? Because it's a curry. They're all anagrams of curry. Romac, Korma. Damzar, Madras. Riodanto, Tandori. Mogan, Mango. Mogan and Tench, Mango and Chutney. No, you're wrong, actually. Katik, Ticker, Davaloin, Vindaloo, and Skimper, Scampy. I thought I'd put that one in because you always get something English, don't you? <laughs> it came to you from somewhere else. It came from the Jasmine Raj in Gerard's Cross. No, it didn't. It came from somewhere else. Where? Through a medium. What, a, a curry medium? Yeah. <laughs> no such thing. Oh, no, wait a minute, there is. <laughs> a medium curry. Well, that's not what I meant. It's subliminal, it's subliminal. It's medium curry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to say that the name analysis has never happened in Doctor Who, but it's happened a lot. Uh, Harold Saxon leaps to mind. There were fan theories abounded that uh, it was the meddling monk. Yeah, and do you not think that was done deliberately? Oh, yeah, of course it was done deliberately, yes. And um, But Russell T. Davis, having been a fan, understood fandom, and he dropped things in there that the fans would get, the casual viewer wouldn't. But he knew that it would drive diehard fans absolutely frothing at the mouth. Love and Monsters. It was just a, a, an episode. We did something with it. It wasn't a pastiche of fandom or any one particular irritating fan. If you choose to read into that, that's your own lookout. <laughs> <laughs> Beautifully and skillfully done. 
Um, but it's now he's now come full circle. You've gone from flippancy overanalyzed <laughs> to flippancy so that it's going to be overanalyzed. I'm, I love all that. Yeah, I'm not talking about the, the 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 sort of the ephemeral nature of this kind of TV show in any negative way. It's a big chunk of why I love stuff mm. like this. We're now making a small industry out of analysing programmes. So there's pots and kettles here, but we are doing it in a light-hearted way. We're not, we're not to... And same pots and kettles with, with Cruise of the Gods. It's obviously written by somebody who knows fandom. Mm, yes. And is writing about it in a very affectionate way because there is no... By the time you get to the end of the... The story, there is nobody that has a bad ending. Andy has come to his realisation about himself, the um, girl that he shagged on the first night and knocks back, gets together with one of the other other fans who's on the cruise and uh, they seem much more settled than uh, than she and Andy ever would have been. Avery Williams' character gets to meet, it, meet his idols and is delighted by it a little. A little bit of invasion of personal space. Um, Andy and, uh, and Nick reconnect. Even the, um, the guy who commits suicide gets the funeral that he wanted mm. and he wouldn't have had otherwise. Oh, I suppose the writer who crawls back into a bottle. Yes. But even with that and where he he blows apart this whole fan theory and David Williams is left standing there having no idea how to deal with this and he's just blustering and saying, no, you're wrong, it's, it's what I want it to be. The character of Russell comes along and says to the, um, to the writer, listen to what he's saying. He is making you out to be a genius. If you tell us that this is made, this is done by a curry, it sounds like you're a talentless shit. Which way do you want us to think of it? Think of you. And he just said, well, yeah, okay, I want you to think I'm a genius. Mm. So apart from that little blip, it, it's a, a sort of positive ending for, for every character on there. This recording session, we've had two examples of dramas or comedy dramas that are written as a pastiche of fandom. And both of them, in their own way, have nailed it really quite hard. Yes, and because they were written by people who who know fandom, um, know their know their subject, and write really affectionately about it. Because it would have been easy to write something like this, really ripping the piss out of fandom. Oh yes, yeah. and they don't. If anything, the stars come off worse. Incredibly, well, it was certainly one of them. But yes, with uh, with that in mind. Uh, thank you to our fandom for sitting through our gin-soaked inane ramblings and following us on this deeply analytical journey. But we will sign off now. Yeah. And and just say, okay, we've, we've told you the whole plot, but it's still a worthwhile thing it to, is, to yeah. watch. If you've ever been to a, a television convention, then this is a joy to watch. So we will see you next time. Goodbye now. Bye. Since we've recorded this podcast, we have unfortunately lost uh, the wonderful Terence Dix, known to most Doctor Who fans as being the author of countless Target books. He was a script editor between 1968 and uh, 1975 and has done countless things for the television series over the years. It's a terrible loss and we didn't really feel like we could let the podcast slip by without recording a quick In Memoriam. Absolutely. We have done, I think, two episodes now of his episode, uh, of his stories, haven't we? We've done the War Games and we've done the Five Doctors, Five Doctors. First, and his, first and his last. And when we were doing the podcast on the Five Doctors, I made the comment that it was the, the story that turned me from somebody who watches and enjoys Doctor Who 
to a Doctor Who fan. It's as clear cut as that. Without the five doctors, I wouldn't be a Doctor Who fan. I wouldn't have got into Dwarfs. I wouldn't have got into the fanzines. I wouldn't have found Time Screen. I wouldn't have got into archive television. We wouldn't be doing this. The blame for my fandom is fairly and squarely at Terence Dick's store. The first book I can ever clearly remember reading was um, Plant of the Daleks. It's a common theme of the internet has been alight this week with people paying tribute on Twitter and Facebook and various news articles. But the number of people that have come out and said that Terence Dix, he was their first memory of reading as a child. The impact that that man had, it, I can't see it being replicated in the same sort of way ever again, because it crossed the TV book medium in a way that no other author has. Yeah, in in terms of um, actual written books, yes. Um, in in terms of impact on the show, I think he ranks up there with Verity Lambert and Russell T Davies. We're, without people of that stature, we wouldn't have the show that we have now. Um, well, we probably wouldn't have the show. It was due for cancellation uh, after the War Games, and they only made season seven because they just didn't have anything else to make. But without Terence Dix and Barry Lentz it probably would have ended there. And that was a winning partnership. I mean, that's the best producer-script-editor combo I think we've ever had in the series, to be honest. Certainly in in terms of consistency. I mean, they knew exactly what they wanted out of the show. They were both pushing in the the same direction. And the early Pertwee is some of the most consistent, if not the most consistent, seasons that the, the classic series had. I would agree with that, yes. And particularly the, the first couple of years when the, the unit stories were really tight. I mean, after, after the three doctors, we start, start seeing that losing a little bit of cohesion. But I mean, the, the unit family stays together until uh, Tom Baker's first year. So it, it's still there. It's just you start getting the Peladon stories and you start getting some of the off-earth stuff. But certainly season, season seven and eight um, and most of season nine are, are really tight in terms of keeping the the unit focus together yeah the, those early Pertwee stories the unit family which is how it's always just referred to they're some of the best that were ever on television if you look past it, the effects and the music have dated quite badly but if you the actual stories themselves my goodness me they really screwed those down they were fully rounded and it's been said and i know it's been said of the modern series as well but um, he'd get scripts and he's his method for script editing was quite brutal. He said you'd get the script, you'd ask the writer to do a rewrite, because which was standard. One one rewrite was just standard. After that, you start going worse as you get further and further away from the original story. So after the first rewrite, pay him off, and then you do the rewrites. And that's how he approached the stories. And it's fairly clear that one man had a sort of guiding light through all those the Persuade series, certainly the Persuade series Yes, and well I'd, I'd say two guiding well, lights Well two, because yeah, it, yeah Because it's it's the, the, the script editor and producer combination mm. that really made those early Persuades and Moonbase 3 as well because they, at the same time they produced the six part BBC harder science fiction series Moonbase 3 and and I know we've done an episode of that for a forthcoming podcast that we're going to do on Moonbases but it's a it's a really entertaining piece of television and it was done hand in hand with the Doctor Who that they were doing at the time it's so, very Doctor Who Moonbase 3 that's worth an episode on its own to be honest I've seen a bit more you've left the disc with me I've seen a bit more it's just 
sublime, really. That's Doctor Who as hard-edged as it would come. They'd go beyond. They'd never got away with that. But it was really, really well done. Yeah, I mean, we, we've done. We did the first episode for the the forthcoming um, Moonbases episode, and yeah, I'd, I'd like to do the remaining five mm. for, uh, for an episode on its own. But that that stuff to come. Realistically, the reason I'd like to do that is because it was so tightly written, tightly edited very different while at the same time being really quite similar to Doctor Who of the time and and some some very clever scripts. Yes, it was. Getting back to Terran Sticks specifically um, and primarily his Doctor Who work. He's done a lot of other stuff. He did a lot of children's books which were non-Doctor Who. Prolific is the only way to describe him as a writer. As a writer of novels, yes. When I was looking at his TV output, I honestly thought he'd done a lot more than he mm. had. I mean, okay, he was hugely influential with Doctor Who. Uh, he did Moonbase 3. Other than that, I think he did four, maybe five uh, of the early episodes of The Avengers, um, all, all of which were season two, season three. So all, all of those survive. He did an episode of Space 1999, and he was a, one of the staff writers on Crossroads and did the uh, the script editing for an awful lot of the, the BBC classic serials of the, the late 70s and 80s. I guess I'm biased by just what a big name he is in in Doctor Who terms, I was really surprised that he hadn't been involved in other shows that were uh, were around at the time. And he, he obviously just completely focused his creative input onto Doctor Who for the time that he uh, he worked with it, and then moved more in, into novel writing. And oh, when I when I was first starting as, as a Doctor Who fan, there were always the jokes about the uh, the Terran Sticks novelizations and the uh, the uh, the pamphlets because they were they were very short. I mean, mm. they were. Uh, typically less than 200 pages you could read them very quickly and this was seen as a negative thing i don't think it was at all i loved the fact that you could get a, a doctor who story that you could read you could easily read in a couple of hours and okay it may not be massive long descriptive passages but it doesn't need it it's got it's got that very tight concise poverty but breadth of, uh, of writing that you get with agatha christie um and yes both Agatha Christie and Terence Sticks could absolutely catapult you into a scene with two or three sentences because they were just so well crafted and easy to read. Segwaying a little, this is the reason I've always far preferred reading Agatha Christie to people who, with a, a more modern lens, are a little bit better regarded. So Dorothy Sayers, who is massively descriptive and te- will take five pages to what, say what Agatha Christie can say in two sentences. And Terence Dix had that brevity but quality of writing. Um, yeah, I agree with that. The target novels, I remember going to my local library in Lostock Hall when I was little, just taking out armfuls of Doctor Who novels. I could happily read two or three in a weekend. And just that, I, I think I was more familiar with the name Terence Dix from the books. So when I actually saw it on screen uh, during the Davison era, I'd never made the connection before then, but I think I was first introduced to him through the books. When I started as a fan and I was going back and I was consciously reading the, um, the Doctor Who novels as part of the show's history rather than just something I fancied reading, because I'd, I'd read quite a few of them uh, beforehand. And I can remember exactly which one it was that I read just after I watched the, the Five Doctors and recognized quite what the, um, the show's history was. And it was Tomb of the Cybermen. Hmm. There's a section at the beginning of that where he makes a very brief 
reference to Polly as the um, the person who left behind the the miniskirt that Victoria ends up wearing because her um, oh I didn't her, know that a big half mechanoid dress is um, <laughs> is impractical. It was a throwaway reference, but it really harked not really harked back because by the time two two of the Cybermen was going, Polly had only been gone for two stories. Mm. Um, but it it really sort of brought in just a nice little touch to the uh, the history of the show and throughout the things that he wrote there were those gentle little touches to other people's eras other people's writing and it was just gentle acknowledgements that this was a part of a much bigger history yeah and it's those little touches that the fans do appreciate um to a casual reader if if they really genuinely are any casual readers it's not going to confuse anybody, but to a fan, that little nod to the past. And the nods to the past are always appreciated. That goes for New Who as well. I think particularly for New Who. Yeah, and actually, the, I think the thing that we miss with New Who is the novelizations. Yes. And uh, Yeah, we can get the DVDs or Blu-rays and watch them anytime we want to. And we can do that with any of the surviving classic stories. I actually still read the novelizations sometimes. I've got them all on my Kindle. Oh, how modern. Yeah. I've actually got the complete Target collection on my shelf. Oh, Wouldn't you believe well, it? I, I had those at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, if, if, I'm, if I'm stuck on a train for a couple of hours reading The Moonbase or Image of the Fendal or Mutants or one of, one of my absolute favourites, I, I can fire it up and I'm transported for the hour and a half, two hours it takes to, to read it. And there are very few authors that can do that for me um, in, in terms of the whole body of work. It's the, the Doctor Who novels. It's Agatha Christie. Oh, Agatha Christie, yes. Is there anybody else? H.P. Lovecraft. I can, I can read his stuff over and over again. But there, there, are, there are very few. There, there would be a few others, but there are very few. Well, I think... We should, um, we'll do a podcast at some point specifically to honor Terrence Dix. He's, um, he's so big an impact that he needs an episode all of his own. In the meantime, we should raise a glass and realistically, we should be raising a pint of ale, which is very much my tipple. But I think he'd approve of the tonic screwdriver. I think you're probably right. And I have chosen for the uh, the tonic screwdriver the strongest gin that I could find in the collection, um, <laughs> which is the Edinburgh Cannonball Gin, which is a whopping fifty-seven percent. Yeah, and um, it's very nice. It is, I, and and there's some info bollocks that comes with it. <laughs> It says, Cannonball Gin, inspired by our capital's naval heritage, cannons and the one o'clock gun, Edinburgh's Navy Strength Cannonball Gin is bottled at 57.2 ABV, the traditional strength for naval gin. The unique recipe includes double juniper, Sichuan pepper and lemon zest, bringing a strong distinctive flavour, perfect in a martini or a Negroni. Now we're drinking with this with tonic because mm. we always drink it with tonic as a, as a comparative thing and it's bloody lovely. I'm going to give this five. Five Bernards. Oh, that hits the spot. Yeah, this is a clear five. Yeah. It is an absolute classic crisp gin taste. It's got a, a kick to it. Um, 57% it's got a hell of a kick to it. But it's not It's not fire water. It's not burn, burn your throat. It no. is. It's nice. It's smooth. I might try some of this as a, as a martini sometime because I think this would make a lovely martini. I'm drinking it with ordinary Schweppes tonic. Yeah, likewise. So what better way to send off Uncle Terence? Terence yeah. Dix. We salute you. We're raising a glass to you, sir. Thank you for all the memories. Never to be forgotten.
the final thing I was going to add, because normally we do a, a Black Archive, and I was looking to see what he wrote that we could put into the Black Archive. And the only thing I think of is his episodes of Crossroads when he was a staff writer there, because all of his Avengers exists, all of his Doctor Who exists, all of his Moonbase 13 exists, his Space 1999 exists, all of his gen- genre output exists in the archives. Okay, some of the poetry stuff, we could get cleaner copies, but considering how well they do, uh, the restoration team have done with the material that they have and mm-hmm. we, we 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 covered that when we when we did plan to the daleks for a forthcoming episode there's not actually anything that we could uh black archive for him and it would be i think very very unfair to do a black archive for anybody else's work on, on this so on this one i think the black archive has to stay closed shut and bolted but we shall commemorate i, I never State. thought we'd say that it's a pleasure to be able to say that this time but we'll commemorate him properly on a forthcoming podcast in the meantime we will finish our very strong gins and sorry you've got some left there's only an eyeful <laughs> yeah well but with that we will sign off thank you for listening as ever boys and girls we'll be back in a fortnight with the next episode thank you for listening and raising the glass to Terran Sticks The Exton Moss Experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss, and the title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra. All featured television soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. The programme was recorded in Rushton, Lancashire, and produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit our website at extonmossexperiment.blogspot.com or find us on Facebook.